don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome back to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwalm, and we are back here today with Alex Ebert of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. He has that hit song, Home, that I'm sure you've heard and which I love. And I'm so excited for this conversation because I actually talked to Alex once before, but it was in April of 2020 and probably the most disorienting month of the pandemic. So the whole thing felt like a bit of a fever dream. So I'm excited to have you back, Alex. Yeah, wow, was that? That was 2020, that's crazy. I remember where I was doing that interview. I was in the room next door and that was my first podcast, like my first real public conversation. Usually I try and insert death into the mix. I'm like, yeah, let's talk. And, 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 and I'm, the, I'm instigating it. That was my first conversation. We're like, yeah, let's talk about it. Where it was an invitation. So I'll, I, think I'll, I think that one, you know, I've done so many podcasts and I forget them all, but that one I really sort of remembered stuck with me. Yeah, me too. I was in Connecticut at these sort of new friends I barely knew who had invited me to like get out of the city for a week. And I ended up staying over a month and it was just such a strange time. And then it was interspersed by this conversation about death, philosophy, music. It was really kind of special. So I'm really glad to have you back. And you've been doing a lot of really interesting things since then as well. Where, where do we start? I just listened to your new single, To Feel Alive. Oh, yeah. It's got the magic. It's really nice. Yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool song. I had written, um, once in a while you write something, and while you're playing it, while you're writing it, I guess in, in very simple terms, while you're writing it, you start crying. And uh, it just fills you with emotion. The very first time you touch the piano or strum the guitar and you just start playing a song that you didn't know, that you didn't previously know. And, um, and I started, and, and once in a while it happens where when you do that, you're actually singing the lyrics at the same time that you're writing. So you're really writing a song all at once. Um, and it was so simple. It was like, do what you need to feel alive, run around in circles in the backyard. And all of a sudden I was just like, <laughs> like crying. And, um, yeah. And so it was nice that this documentary very shortly after that was like, do you have any songs for like a documentary about this guy named Ethan, who we document dying and the process of dying and whatnot. And, and the name of the movie is The Last Ecstatic Days. It's a forthcoming ex- documentary. Yes. I've watched the trailer. I love a link to both the trailer of this documentary oh, and your single that is sort of, I guess, the soundtrack to this documentary when it comes out. Yeah. Um, in the show notes, everybody. But it's really special. Can you talk a little bit about what this project was, The Last Ecstatic Days? Yeah. You know, when I heard the title, I was like, okay, this sounds, you know, it's a thing about a guy dying and it's uh, called The Last Ecstatic Days. And here I am writing this song about do what you need to feel alive and, and creating those sort of ecstatic moments. Um, and then I watched, they sent me the movie and uh, it was not finished. They were still in the process of editing and stuff, but they sent me a rough cut and it just really touched me. It was really, I had never seen anything like that. You see movies about 
death and people die in movies all the time and it's sad and and uh, and all of that but i'd never been invited in sort of like a two-hour format to someone's whole process of dying uh, all on camera all very real um, so this guy ethan he got diagnosed with a brain tumor and uh, he started documenting his process uh, of going, you know, treatment and how he's dealing with it and his attitude toward death on TikTok. And eventually it, you know, he was expressing, as the story goes, the, the desire to do this process with a community and around people and a community sort of formed around him vis-a-vis -vis the whole TikTok thing and, and, it got the attention of some documentary filmmakers. And one of the coolest parts of this story is that, and I don't know all the details, but there was a group or a person, uh, I believe in North Carolina, who was like, well, you know, we have this big ranch and why don't we invite Ethan up here and we'll, our community will sort of come together to essentially help transition Ethan from this life to uh, the afterlife. And that's in, in a lot of ways, the most beautiful part is this sort of, you know, there's like death doula work going on now and all of that. And this was a, such an amazing and, and uh, distinct uh, juxtaposition between this and a convalescent home or this and your typical palliative care sort of thing. This is like, this was this really beautiful send off uh, with love and care and uh, just vitality, like so much vitality uh, on the runway to death. And so one of the coolest things that's happened because of the documentary is according to the producer who, who sort of was telling me all about this before I sort of, you know, was like, okay, I'll make this song. Um, said that this ranch now is like, you know, has now set up shop as an alternative palliative care sort of end of life facility where you can go and have this very different uh, and beautiful and communal and warm and loving and spiritually sort of saturated experience on your way to the other side. And, um, I just think that's so great. And a return of that in this culture is like the effects of that. I, I just, I think they're almost incalculable. It's, we really need that sort of thing. So that was wonderful to hear. Um, and, and I think that the, the producer of the movie, everyone associated with movies sort of sees the movie as part of a movement, not just a movie, but a part of a movement. Yeah. It, I, I watched the trailer. The, the whole movie isn't, uh, isn't out yet, but uh, it seems like, you know, 36 year old guy. So very young, um, terminal cancer and trying to have as many last good days as he can. And you're, you're sort of watching him do that in a very, like what he's still able to do. And, um, and I guess as you're watching this, just at least in the trailer, you know, you're, you're seeing these very authentic smiles and real emotion come through and feeling the sort of vitalness of life when you know it's precious 
yeah. when every day counts is coming through in a way that's palpable. And I got a little bit misty eyed, even as I watched this couple minute trailer. So I can yeah. only imagine what it's like to see that over two hours. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot, you know, it's also, it's a sort of a shock to the system, but it's a really beautiful, yeah, uh, nutritious shock. It's also, it sounds like a beautiful counterpoint uh, or movement to, you know, I'd say the usual American sort of uh, culture around death, which is avoidance. You know, often when someone's going through a big grief event, people in their community avoid them. When someone is, you know, in the hospital or dying, it's pretty rare these days to have that circle the wagons moment of everyone coming around. Um, yeah. Often people don't know what to say and they move on with their life and they don't know how to help so that they don't reach out. And, you know, we have this very clinical, perhaps in ho- going in and out of hospitals and then that's it, you know, um, to feel like there's this um, care for the body happening, but even more so because there's not much they can do in terms of treatment here. It's all care for the soul. I'll care for how can we give you more good days before it's over? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's like, this is such an important piece of the puzzle, I think. So you have this sort of end of life piece of puzzle where we, where we can really greatly improve the way that we approach dying at the end of life. And then we are sort of still missing in a lot of ways, the, earlier piece of the puzzle where we can approach death as a way of living, Uh, you know, like uh, rites of passage, um, these sorts of things that have also been lost. Um, But I think it's a, just an amazing piece of the puzzle and the avoidance. I just love seeing now, and I think it's just cropped up in the last few years, at least popularly. I'm sure it was going on for a while, but like, I see a lot of like death doula pages and um, and death wives and uh, uh, which I think itself is maybe just the name of a group on Instagram, but um, and Stephen Jenkinson and you guys and I don't know how long you've been doing this, but um, it's it's really 2017. It's been a while now. 2017, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's it's. It's just so cool and important, and um, it's the final frontier, you know. So it's uh, it's good stuff. So this song to feel alive. I was actually wondering if you wrote it for this music, this movie, but it sounds like it came before. And it when they asked you for something, you had the perfect thing. Yeah, I hadn't recorded it. I'd recorded a version, but I didn't quite like it. And then I, uh, when they asked me for a song. I immediately thought of that song and so then went about recording it. So, you know, I had written it, but hadn't recorded it uh, when they asked me. And um, yeah, this great cellist who lives in New Orleans named Helen Gillet, I just had this feeling that I didn't want this song to be a big chorus bit. I really wanted the the feeling of do what you need to feel alive to be this sort of mantra. And then for the send off to be this just experiential oceanic 
vibrant. And so, you know, a lot of times lyrics sort of fuck that up. Um, uh, so anyway, this cellist came in, she just crushed it. And um, yeah, and then I, I put some non-lyrical uh, melodic stuff in there. And then all of a sudden I felt like, you know, I had this experiential song, this piece of cinema one of the things writing a song that's always nagging at you because you 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 are so intimately aware of the uh the requirements of pop music and the form and format it's always in your mind that well i need a chorus or okay verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus out is the typical construct and you can stray away from it a little bit but just not having a chorus you shouldn't do that you know and um, but this was one of those cases where it was like, you know, you just sort of throw the format uh, to the wind because in a lot of ways it is like scoring. And, and that's one of the things I love about scoring is it's not about anything other than what the moment requires, what the moment wants. And you don't follow formats. It's not like when you write a piece of classical music, you always go back to a chorus in a lot of ways. <laughs> There is no chorus. It might happen, you know, the, the, the most famous piece of a piece might happen in the beginning and never repeat. Um, whatever the feeling requires of you. So in this case, I felt the liberty to do that. And um, yeah, and so we ended up with, uh, with this song that reminds me a lot, I should say, of a song that was covered. It's originally by Jacques Brel who's a French singer from the 60s and I think late 50s even, but early 60s through the 60s and 70s. Jacques Brel is just incredible. And if you get a chance to see this performance of his on YouTube called Le Moribond, um, and throughout the song, he's saying hello to different people. And he's like, you know, hello, Emile, I'm going to die. How's life for you? Do you remember when we chased girls? Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to die. It's nice to see you. Hello, mom. I'm going to die. And it's just this incredible performance. And then later, there's this band in America who covered it uh, with a song called Seasons in the Sun. We had fun. We had done. We had seasons in the sun. But the tie we occurred, I was seeing that and day. If you remember that one. Um, ba da 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 and I realized that to be alive or to feel alive is like, do what you need to feel alive. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Did I rip this off? And ultimately, I decided it was uh, different enough not to um, sort of pay tribute. But, uh, you know, if they want to sue me, I will I will happily join uh, whoever the representatives of uh, Jacques Brel are in court and just to meet them. But I would also probably... <laughs> deny them uh, the right to sue it because it is different. But I just, you know, there's sometimes you just feel like you're part of an accidental or incidental zeitgeist. And um, I always resonate, you know, that Jacques Brel performance is just so amazing. Uh, and the reason it resonates so much with it, he was like one of Nina Simone's favorites. She covered him uh, is just because I always have resonated with performers and songwriters who deal with the subject of death head on because when you deal with death head on, there is a certain, 
uh, requirement where you have to obviously throw caution to the wind because it's this sacred sort of point of reference where you're dealing, you're talking about death and it's almost like <clears throat> spooky. And if you talk about it, it might happen, right? Like we croak. What are you affirming that I'm going to croak? Like if I do this podcast, am I going to die sooner? <laughs> because now <laughs> I'm, <laughs> because now I'm not even have interviewed yet, but you never know. <laughs> So like, you know, there, there's this sort of taboo structure around death and, um, and what it requires of you to approach it in a lot of ways, especially on stage and as a performer is like, there's a certain uh, courage, but also a, 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 an ability to self-efface or self-destruct. There's a certain beautiful self-destruction in the same way that awe produces self-destruction when you're overwhelmed by an experience and you lose yourself you lose your place of time there's a similar and that and that itself takes courage to even experience because that's scary to lose your identity momentarily and and, and it's similar when you approach death it's like this giant resonating hyper object you know it's true i think that i think maybe one of the reasons the song struck me so much is i've done enough you know, basically that salience meditation or whatever you want to call it over these last five or six years that I know that, you know, when you're doing the deep legit thing, there's a certain awe that you feel that's that like perfect mixture of terror and wonder kind of expansiveness yeah. and, you know, mortal fear of, you know, the come all coming together and um, it's hard to fake. And it's, it's in that song. It's in, it's in there uh, that real sort of, confronting mortality and all the questions that brings up that are unanswerable and immense. Yeah. I'm glad you feel that. That's cool. That's great to know. Um, I, it, it's ended up being that people that usually don't reach out to me about anything I've put out, reached out to me and were like, I love that song. Another guy told me, I think this is uh, your best. I was like, really? Wow. That's, that's, that must mean that these things communicate. I don't even know, you know, how is it that we can come up with an idea, communicate it, and then someone understands not just the words and the semantics, but the feeling that they somehow are. I was always amazed by that with uh, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. It was like, I used to tell this story where we were playing, uh, what's the name of this town? It's a very small town in, in, in Waya, uh, Montana, Missoula. And, um, and we were playing Missoula and once in a while, you don't feel like going on stage. Once in a while, you're just like, I don't care. I don't want to be here. And I was, I was upset. It was less that I didn't want to go on stage, more that I just didn't feel the vibrations of love. I didn't feel the Edward Sharp vibe. Um, yeah, so let's talk about that because Edward yeah. Sharp is dead now, or at least you said so in the New York Times. I read the article where you kind of pronounced that alter ego dead. So can you yeah. talk about that? Yeah. How did he live? How did he die? Um, may he one day be resurrected? Like what is, <laughs> what is the story behind that? You know, yeah, that it's, alter uh, ego that brought you so much fame and success. It's interesting, man. Like, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll parlay the story I was about to tell into that question. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to, I'm in a bad mood. I go on stage and the crowd is screaming and, and wiling out and they have so much love. And I'm like, how does this little Missoula town already know 
to be like this really er to suspend all their punk rock sort of shit and the irony and the hipsterism and just embrace earnestness inside of this club in the safe space and just go for it. How did we communicate that to them without communicating that to them? And somehow I was very inspired. And during that time, it was like, the, the 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 movement of earnestness in the face of irony and pessimism and sarcasm was this really almost punk rock inversion that I felt really inspired by and I and I thought it was amazing and and yet it had always occurred to me I asked myself at the beginning of Edward Sharp if this if love let's just call everything I'm describing the earnestness the hippie thing the blah 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 all that stuff if if that we just call that love if love becomes this really popular populous thing, like it goes mainstream, right? Instead of being like a hip person and you're sort of aloof and the thing and the thing and all the like coolness goes away. And in, in place of cool, we just have this like really lame uh, love that is just purely earnest and beautiful and is not concerned with status anxiety and all these things. Would I abandon it because it's no longer the asymmetrical social thing it's no longer like this thing that's mine or this thing that like differentiate differentiates itself from the rest of the world. And now it's just mainstream. Will I abandon it because I'm so addicted to vanguardism? Like I, I have to be unique or will I stay with it because I genuinely want to spread this fucking message. Right. And, um, I forgot when I asked myself that question about capitalism and the way that it works that once think something becomes popular, it doesn't simply become popular and symmetrical and you lose the asymmetry, but it also sells Hondas. It also becomes this replicable thing that is no longer has the, con the, the intent within its content. And I started, by the time 2011 rolled around, I started seeing these other bands doing the exact same thing, but more polished, uh, like, and when I say the exact same thing, I mean like the exact same thing. I almost talk about suing another band. Like we came very close to suing a few bands I won't mention. And um, so like some where people would call like, congratulations for that uh, iPod commercial. It's like, what's the iPod commercial? They're like, that song. And then I'd go look. I'm like, oh, it's that band. And it's the exact same chords. We had a musicologist look at it. Anyway, so I eventually realized like, you know what? I can't, I can't somehow somehow now this has been molested by uh consumerism and i have to and i slowly began trying to figure out i it, it it created a crisis for me where i didn't any longer understand where my actual instincts lied and um and that took about 5 years to parse through um and it's a really shitty predicament because on the one hand, like for instance, there was a follow-up to home that I've never put out. It was called uh, let's win. And it was this beautiful song, but it was just like home. It was like, okay, like home part two. It was for the second album. The second album debuted at number four on the billboard charts. Now, if this song had been on it, that album probably would have climbed to number one, but at that time, all these other bands were doing the same thing and they're selling Hondas and it just felt weird. And I suddenly felt like now I was a part of this thing that was hollowed out. And so I just threw the fucking song in the trash and we didn't put it on the album. But I look back at that moment and I think, why did I like which 
there's a certain point at which you lose the plot where the very the very impulse like the true impulse gets convoluted in your own attempt to navigate authenticity and um and so like in a lot of ways trying to be authentic uh erodes your capacity to understand or orient yourself toward authenticity because you begin triangulating yourself relative to uh to other other movements and um everything just got very confusing for me and on top of that touring was really difficult uh for you know that extent of it is 10 years and i had a kid so all that kind of combined to make me just be like i'm pulling out of this world and what's interesting i'll end with this is that yeah touring is one of these things that when you're in it it's kind of like living in los angeles or something when you're in it you just don't really realize what's happening and then you get out of it and you're like spend enough time out of it and you're like whoa that was it's like being in a bad relationship or something and you don't quite understand how all consumingly bizarre and how life could be something else and now that i'm out of touring i i honestly don't think i would oh man i maybe i'll tour again but uh hesitantly yeah cuz i it's with a lot of care it <laughs> sounds like a really rich crisis of faith experience it is cuz i guess yeah edward sharkmer had this uh, the band had this idealism and i guess it was real for you of like if only yeah. this vibe of earnest love could be popular the world would be different and then it did get popular but didn't look all that different is that sort of a <laughs> yeah exactly the crisis in a nutshell that's the crisis you know that's the long-winded crisis in a perfect nutshell yeah so yeah, where, yeah. Where are you with that now? Do you still feel the same crisis when you think about fame and popularity and bringing? No, like, you know what? You know what's so world. You know what I'm dealing with now is Gen Z. So <laughs> Gen Z has no idea what selling out is. No idea to them. To Gen Z, selling out is Billie Eilish no longer wearing baggy pants. Selling out has nothing to do with being sponsored by Amex like Kendrick Lamar is or drinking Coca-Cola like Beyonce. It has only to do with you, quote, not being true to a given aesthetic. And um, so in other words, once you establish your personal brand, don't deviate from it. Now, that is the most capitalist thing I can think of. And somehow selling out now is not being capitalist, whereas in the 90s, selling out was being uh, uh, explicitly capitalist. So now I'm trying to be like, okay, let me, maybe there's a little bit of wisdom in this. Maybe this is just the flow of capital produces the world, uh, the world communism or something, or, or maybe just the atomization of humanity is eventually a good thing because the dissipation of cliques is eventually just this incredible ubiquitous unity anyway if we all are individuals then we all are unified in the individuality i just i'm trying to wrap my head around the direction of humanity in a positive way and so when i think about when i see like that nobody cares anymore whether or not you sell a honda with your music um and everyone just completely through ironic ubiquity Irony, I, irony has disappeared, essentially, and everyone can earnestly embrace Beyonce um, and earnestly embrace any kind of pop format as totally cool. 
because everything is laced with irony. Therefore, we have total protection to embrace everything earnestly. So it's this amazing flip where if everything is ironic, then you can embrace anything with the safety of that irony earnestly. Right. And so now I can be like, okay, well, maybe I should then just start writing fucking pop songs, like just literal, actual fucking pop songs, because fuck it, because somehow it's ironic and anyway, nobody cares. And so I can earnestly just be like, okay, well, now what do I earnestly like? Do I do I do I earn I love ABBA. Do I earnestly like uh, fucking I don't even know. And I, and, and I don't think that I do because my kid is 10 and she listens to a bunch of shit that I fucking hate. Like I hate, I have a visceral, actual bodily reaction to this shit, you know? Um, so I'm still parsing through all this stuff. And uh, ultimately what I'm landing at at the moment is that like there was this great study done. It was done in 2014 and it was a 50 year study of music from 1954 to like, uh, 2004. It's called the Million, Million Song Database, and they just they they had a, a, a machine learning analyze songs across all genres for 50 years across all genres to see if music had changed. And guess what they found? Music has become ubiquitously more homogenized. We're talking chordal variety, dynamic uh, uh, dynamic uh, variety, dynamism. And, um, and timbral variety. So we're talking in every category, music has become more and more the same. Now, some of that is a result of technology. Actually, a lot of it's a result of technology. But anyway, point being, this sameness, and while I think that we drive, you know, it's almost like the death drive. We want to create this like total equilibrium, flat line of culture where everything is basically the same. So it's all a flat line. So we're almost sort of like, neurotically investing ourselves in our own like collective cultural death. (laughs) And maybe I should embrace that. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe if I don't embrace that and I'm trying to rush toward difference, I'm actually denying death. Maybe I should just embrace the social flatline of pop culture and just go to Applebee's and eat every meal at Applebee's yeah. And because otherwise I'm running away from death. Right. So there's this conundrums going on that I think are rather interesting. Yeah, I guess, you know, the cultural zeitgeist is one of the instruments you, you have to include in any art you make. It's just what's happening in the background. Sure. And uh, I don't know. I mean, not that you asked me for advice, but <laughs> give me some advice. You're still alive, Alex. <laughs> That's writing an Abba level pop song. Do that. If taking a sharp left turn into difference right. is what feels alive. Do that. Sure. I'll, you'll have your fans no matter what you do, I think. Do what um, you need to feel alive. And I, and I agree, right? If, if uh, you know, I, I have, it's very possible that the reason songs are all becoming the same is not because we want to feel dead, but because we are algorithmically hacking the synaptic shortcuts to our most vital enjoyments. And we're realizing, oh, this kick. I remember I worked with Avicii, uh, rest in peace. And he had a kick that he used on the song that we were making. And I was like, wow, that's a great kick. He goes, oh, it took me years to find. Uh, And the implication was he uses this kick on all his songs. And then after he died, fans of his would send me the Avicii sound pack. And it was just the sounds he used and they all use it. He used it. They use it. 
And what we're discovering is that there are very specific frequencies which we re make us feel alive. And so maybe that's why everything's becoming more and more the same, because we're actually honing in, homing in on, uh, on vitality. I mean, that could also be it. That's a very mechanistic view of art. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm not going to say I don't give it any credence because I have been on the dance floor when, the, when they, as they call it, the beat right. drops. The beat drops. something very yeah. like, yeah. Uh, you know, almost like physical hardwire happening. And yeah. yet to really kick it off into transcendence, there also has to be a melody and an art and a, and a moment, right? There has to be a moment. Right? It has to all come together. Absolutely. Yeah. It's gotta be. Yeah. Um, well, that's really interesting. So you really feel like all music is the same now? Well, it's more similar. It's not, it's, it's certainly not. So it's interesting. There's this weird relationship between democratization and homogenization. Like you'd think that the more democratized the tools to a given creative form become, the more pluralistic, the more weird, the more various, the more uh, individualistic it would become because you have, after all, more individuals working on art. So theoretically, there's going to be more difference. But I think because of, uh, you know, the mimetic nature of humanity, copycat sort of uh, syndrome, but also because, you know, it's like uh, when you say decision by committee or when I'm scoring films and then they, it's an amazing, very interesting film, and then they show it to an audience and then they get the feedback and then they re-edit it based on that feedback. And then the movie comes back to me and it's now this banal movie. It's no longer an interesting movie because they took all of these other opinions and applied it to the movie. Yeah, things are becoming more and more the same. And a great comparison is if you want to go check out like the films of 1972, top 10, and then the top 10 of, of 2022, it's shocking. Um, every single top 10 movie in 2022 is not only a, a, a sequel, but like six tenths of them are at least three deep into their sequel. And almost all of them, absolutely all of them are adventures with the exception of Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And, um, and I think five of them are Marvel, one's DC, the Batman. Anyway, it's, it's madness. And then in 1972, you have the Godfather, you have Cabaret, you have Last Tango in Paris, you have a, a, porn, a porno in Deep Throat. You have all these incredible movies. You have, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, I think cultural vanguardism moves around. You know, like one generation it's in film, the next generation it's in TV series, mm. the next generation it's in you know, weird TikTok videos, then in poetry. Sure. Like you're looking around, there's always some stuff that feels new somewhere. I think you're um, right. And, and, and I think that the, you're, you point to a good thing, which is that the technologies that are newer, which haven't been, haven't had time to sort of optimize themselves for the mass market. Um, yeah, there's going to be vanguardism that moves around from format to format. I think in a lot of ways, your, the, this format uh, that, you know, I think the rise of podcasts um, is an example of uh, a sort of, a, a, as of yet, sub-optimized, non-optimized, interestingness. <laughs> it has a lot of it has a lot of interestingness to it. Even just the length of it sort of resists optimization. So I think it's a cool format. 
Yeah, bringing back the art of conversation. People haven't talked yeah. about that since Victorian days. Yeah. Uh, at least that's how I kind of look at it. But uh, that actually is a good segue because you started a newsletter called Bad Guru. And one of your yeah. recent posts was about uh, sort of against optimization um, yeah. as sort of an artistic or uh, cultural sort of way of living. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea? Because I actually had wrote it in my notes here as something I wanted oh, to yeah. bring. Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, apropos of what we were just talking about, you know, I'm looking at culture and it seems to be uh, becoming more and more the same. And yet I wouldn't say that we're enjoying culture any less. Um, uh, we seem to be... Perhaps even, you know, if compulsion is any indication of like extreme enjoyment, we seem to be really compulsively uh, uh, consuming content, right? And so, um, and a lot of the reason why we are compulsively consuming content is because the interfaces with which we are consuming have been optimized and they're continuously optimizing uh, to increase our consumptive behavior. For instance, okay, so let's take a guitar, right? The opt and, and when we talk about optimization, we're talk I'm talking about it initially in the context of like general optimization, optimizations of time. So for instance, when I talk about mastering the guitar, what would be the optimal way for me to master the guitar? Well, I could sit there and spend fucking 10 years learning how to play the guitar or we can invent a piece of technology that samples like master guitar players. And then all I have to do is literally press a button and I am a master guitar player, right? So you, you transfer through technology, the mastery of guitar playing onto a keyboard and suddenly you've optimized the process <laughs> of, of the mastery of guitar to the point where now, you know, every single hit and strike of the guitar is the same velocity. It's all optimized for sort of maximal uh, volume and these sorts of things for maximal effect. And, um, and so the optimization process sort of leads to a flattening of the various aspects of nuance that usually we, we quantify as human depth, right? So it's like Euro dreams of sushi. It's like a great example, right? Euro doesn't let his son graduate from making the egg, the, the, the egg, uh, uh, what is it? What do you call that? Uh, maki or whatever, but doesn't let him graduate from making the egg onto to sushi with fish. He's got to spend like a decade working on the egg and the son is all pissed off. He's like, I've been working 15 years doing the egg. I really want to graduate to fish or you go karate kid, right? You want to learn karate and, and, and Mr. Miyagi says, wax on, wax off on this fence instead. And you're like, what do you mean? This seems very non-optimal, right? I want to cut right to the chase. I want to, as fast as I can become a black belt. But when you do that process, you end up skipping all of the suboptimal practices, which create the landscape and topology of human depth. So for instance, when we knew less and we had restrictions on knowledge, well, we had to invent myths and we had to invent all these things that are rather suboptimal in terms of getting at the truth. But, you know, and so we have these ornate, you know, philosophies and, 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 and a lot of obscurantism. Like, oh, that's a very difficult philosophical text to dive into. 
Well, it's difficult in part because the philosopher didn't know what, how else to say it. They didn't have a lot of information at their disposal. So they're coming up with, you know, subject object relations and coming up with all these sort of ornate philosophies. Um, but this idea of sub-optimization, like for instance, the grain of film, right? The grain of film is, is technically suboptimal. The, the optimal uh, uh, visual image has no grain in it, right? And and or or vinyl, the cl the the cracks and pops of vinyl, the fact that vinyl has these grooves that limits the amount of bass frequency, um, that's all suboptimal. And yet, when you optimize that to the CD, what do you lose? You lose the sort of architecture, the the aesthetic depth that vinyl had, or when you go from film to video, you lose the aesthetic depth of the grain. And so in a lot of ways, like the further we optimize, the further away from human depth we go, and more and more closely we get into a sort of flattening of culture. So we can even, like the brush, the brush stroke, when you see the brush filaments on a painting and you see that there was actually a brush stroke, well, that's not necessarily optimal. Uh, in terms of like creating an image that is realistic, if that's the optimization, which we seem to be compelled toward, right? Um, we want more and more hyper-realism. We want to create more and more worlds that like convince us that we're in it. And so we end up with less and less, less and less of this sort of depth. Or, you know, there's a, there's, uh, there's a lot of examples of this. Uh, you know, sun-drying coffee is suboptimal. Uh, putting uh, wine, uh, 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 liquor, uh, whiskey in, in uh, wooden casks that actually leach uh, the alcohol and deplete the, alcohol, the liquid from within the cask. That's suboptimal. There's so many examples where if we optimize those processes, like for instance, we decide, well, we're just going to refine, uh, you know, I mean, glyphosate, all these optimizations of crops, every single one of these things is taking away the techne or the mastery of the crop, yes, but that's the obvious comment. The other thing that it's doing is simply flattening the very procedure. Um, and we end up with, I think, less culture. We end up with just a, a world of Applebee's. And, um, yeah. and you see it when you tour, you go from city to city, you're like, I'm so excited to see Phoenix. And then you get to Phoenix and you're like, this is LA. This is the same place I just came from. And, um, and that's just increasingly the case. There's this popular theory called like the 10,000 hours idea that to really get good at something, you got to put in that much time. Sure. Yeah. But this is not quite that idea. It's more that you kind of have to not be on this straight track of doing things the right way. You got to kind of struggle right. or be in the weirdness the loops and curves that are suboptimal in order for your art or your statements to really have a fingerprint a signature that makes it uniquely yours or different from or or, or even literally drop moment yeah exactly or even literally create depth like like actual literal uh depth like the grain of film creates a a very literal uh, well, in that case, non-literal non and abstract, but like the brush strokes or whatever the case, it's like you, you end up with these layers of process as opposed to a uniform 
process. And you also end up with this sense of like, oh, I, I know where this came from. I have a sense of place and time. I see that this came from somewhere as opposed to like this immaculate conception of uh, immaculately conceived art. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I also sound like Ted Kaczynski when I talk like this, right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure the extent to I which... I find it a very comforting idea because most of my life has been inefficient, loop-de-loop. Oh, good. Yeah, I do too. I think being inefficient (laughs) is just beautiful. And I hate when people talk about, let's optimize the process and and self-optimization. And by the way, this loops into death. The reason I got so into this idea of sub-optimization, one of the reasons, is because there's this uh, like Silicon Valley philosopher, guru guy whose name is escaping me, Balaji. And uh, Svenrinsen or something. And, uh, you know, and he's doing a podcast about life extension. And he's talking about all these Silicon Valley people. And there's a bit of like backlash against life extension because it seems like it's anti-death. So he proposes the term to just change the terminology to optimization. And he's like, everybody can agree that optimization is a positive. So we should just change the terminology to optimization and then everything's okay. And, you know, it's like, that's, it's just the wrong, it's like all these life hacks. I did a like silly Instagram post about this, but it's like, everything is this life hack. And again, you're self-optimizing, right? And, and, you know, yeah, sure. Maybe it's like, you know, neurotic fear of death, but, you know, at the end I was like, Whatever happened to the fucking, everything is the shortcut here, shortcut there, shortcut here, shortcut, shortcut to maximum growth, uh, shortcut to uh, uh, maximizing this, maximizing profit, all the shortest paths to uh, feeling this way, to optimizing my time, to optimizing my workday, as if the, those optimizations are supposed to produce more leisure time, which they don't, they just produce more work. Whatever happened to the fucking scenic route? Like whatever happened to meandering, whatever happened to the inefficiencies which produce the incidental uh, uh, synchronicities. Like, oh, I just bumped into someone because I wasn't planning, you know. And I think that as an artist, I have the luxury of really doing that all day. I just don't. I I try and just be a vessel. I don't want to master life. I want life to master me. That's sort of my my mantra. And I realize that's sort of a privileged place to speak from. However, I, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, optimization is taking away jobs. And in a lot of ways, the movement to like, you know, the blue collar movement actually needs to be a suboptimal, suboptimal movement. Otherwise, if we keep going down the path of optimization, um, you know, blindly, uh, not only do we lose jobs and everyone wants to say, yeah, but you create new jobs. Like, okay, maybe. Um, but, uh, you've also flattened culture. There's a lot of, uh, repercussions of optimization that are non, uh, pleasurable. All right. So I've got a corporate job. I work in tech. Sometimes I just want to be optimal, get in and out because I work for yeah. money. I don't want to spend extra time going the long way because sure. I want to end my day and then, you know, do my art, take a long walk, sure. you know, read a book. Um, sometimes, wouldn't you say optimization has its place? Not, not everything can be, you know, the place we want to hang out in and just be. 
Yeah, I mean, you want to get the hell out of places when I'm driving somewhere to the market. I, don't, I want to take the optimal route, right? I don't want to be stuck in traffic. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, absolutely, optimization has its place, especially um, within given constraints. Um, so for instance, your constraint in that you just described is the constraint of work. You're, optimal, you're optimizing within work within the, the, the time zone of, of the workload. And then afterwards, sounds like you're sub-optimizing. You're doing things like meandering, thinking, hanging out. Those are sub-optimal activities, right? Um, so yeah, I think within given constraints, I just think that the, the American mentality anyway is very prone to optimizing absolutely fucking everything, including your leisurely that. time. And it does not look fun. No, because for me, you use the optimal stuff when, you know, it's not the place you really want to be all the time. Like when you're yeah. looking like you're looking forward to the other things that you just want to hang out in. Like yeah. for me, this whole platform, it's very suboptimal. There's many things I could probably promote it faster, better, right. stronger, but it's a passion project. So I do it yeah. my way, how I want um, work. You know, it's got to be big and it's got to be good and it's got to be done by five or six or I'm upset. <laughs> yeah, right. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. And um, I guess, you know, I, I, I harp on the sub-optimization thing so emphatically without addressing the, the, the benefits of optimization, just because we're such an optimized uh, culture at the moment. Um, you know, and I fall into it too, man. I, I, like, I definitely have been so... Uh, so work oriented that actually I would do the opposite within the conscription of my work. I would be suboptimal because I'm playing around. I'm trying to blah, 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 and like experiment, but within the scope of my leisure time and hanging out with friends and family, I would be trying to optimize the fuck out of it so I could get back to work. Right. So I had almost the inverse problem because my work is my suboptimal time. So all of a sudden it made my leisurely time like, like, I needed to optimize that. And it really fucked up my relationships. It fucked up, uh, uh, it, it sort of thwarted my ability to be present, uh, to be uh, as present as I wanted to, especially with my daughter. And over the last, you know, four years or more, actually, that's one of the reasons I stopped touring, you know, because the problem with touring is that you, you can't help but optimize uh, the touring, which means you can't help but add more and more and more and more dates to get from LA back to New York. You well, we're going there. Let's just let's just you know maximize our profit. Anyway, and um, and I got into that mindset, and it just kept going when I wasn't on tour. So part of the last four years has been really been me about trying to unravel and just fucking live a suboptimal leisurely time because it was just so difficult to do that. And actually, what I found is that I'm. I think I'm more productive. Um, I don't, I, you know what? No, that's probably not true. I'm probably a little less productive, but I'm, but I'm more present and, uh, and I am enjoying it all more. I like that. Yeah. You know, just having that balance, you know, thinking about where you want to be efficient, where your priorities are, where you can just be putting yeah. back a little bit more of that suboptimal, just hang out with your family. Yeah. Sounds really nice. Yeah. You know, if it's all yeah. grocery, get in and out as fast as you can, you know, 
scheduled dinner times and then back to the and all your like hang out for five hours you know thinking about to feel alive and how you're going to put in the cello gets to be the long sort of languorous moment but you know it's, yeah. it's a gorgeous song you must have I'm, I'm imagining the suboptimal sort of way into that and all that oh, yeah. took. but that is you know time that you know also like you know it needed that time but so does your kid. So does other things in your life you want to give it to. I know. It's, it, you know, there's nothing worse than the feeling of being with your kid and trying to optimize the time. For me, trying to optimize the time in the sense of like, I want to spend suboptimal time. The kid, what she wants to do is like do the most inane suboptimal shit ever, right? She wants me to play this game that I invented called uh, Stowaway where she's a stowaway and I'm this captain looking for an eight year old girl. And I have to spend <laughs> it's like, and it goes, it goes on and on. And then, and not only does she escape from England to them to America, then she's like, then she goes for the gold rush cause it's the 1800s and I have to take her across them. And meanwhile, it's like hours are going by. I'm like, ah, oh, but if I just fucking enjoy it, all of a sudden I'm having the best time in the world and I'm hanging out with my best friend. But it's an amazing switch. If it doesn't get switched the whole time, you're all, you're basically not present. You're just an automaton trying to 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 hurry the fucking show up, and it's just the shittiest feeling. Yeah. Oh, we had some really kind of uh, deep spaces there. I didn't realize we had it in us around optimization. <laughs> yeah. What a word yeah. to think about yeah. life and death with. Yeah. What are you excited about next? That's a great question. Uh, well, I'm excited about a lot of stuff, man. I, I, I would, I, I'm excited about re-entering life in a lot of ways. I, I feel like I took the last six years off, and um, and oh, was basically basically a hermit. And uh, I think, yeah, starting in about 2017, and um, and have you know i put out one album but i and and that song but but for the most part you know i've been sitting on five five or six albums i'm scoring i'm doing these things i've been writing a lot but i'm starting to feel like this was just a big incubation period i i always fancied myself like a thinker you know like magnetic zeros was a fake mathematics i came up with and and it was a very intricate mathematics and 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 i and i look back at my old writings when i was like 20 and it's like me trying to like arrogantly critique kant and fucking whatever and like i'm i'm doing all these things and i'm looking at like this that's that's me you know that's me but i didn't know what the fuck i was talking about and and i didn't have life experience and and I had all these really good instincts, but I didn't, I, I couldn't validate them on any real level, except with my own arrogance. And I think I've spent the last six years just really thinking a lot and writing a lot and reading and communicating a lot and understanding more. And, and I, I almost feel like I've been spending my time, my monk time up on the mountain, and it's kind of sort of starting to get to be the time where I come back, you know, to society. And um, so, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I used like to you had a, a, a really rich crisis of faith around what you were making music and art for last yeah. year. 
and it's finally resolving into yeah another reason to show off what you can do yeah man um yeah it, it is and you know what i think i'm most excited about is that i'm not as i'm not quite as <laughs> i'm not quite as severe as i used to be uh i used to be i think a pretty imposing maybe even scary person to be around. I was super judgmental. I had a lot of very, very fundamental ideas about proper uh, resistance and proper this and that. And, um, and, and, and largely it was based around my own insecurities being in the world that I'm in and not, and feeling impotent with regard to my ability to change it. And, um, and so that would like come out, as these sort of lashings and um and and i think the last six years have just really of like have just been so so much growth uh for so many different reasons that it's just nice to feel more forgiving and i suppose what that really means is forgiving of myself but also just to feel like i have a better handle on everything and and um and yeah, so I'm excited to re-enter life with that mindset as opposed to this like severe um, mindset. Well, I'm sure I speak for a lot of people when I say that uh, we're excited to have you back with that <laughs> mindset. Sounds great. Thank you. We all uh, could use less severity inside us. So yeah, yeah, excited yeah, to exactly. hear how that sounds and right on. See the projects, read the newsletters. I'll have links everybody to everything we talked about of Alex's, the newsletter, the uh, this new single, um, the trailer to uh, The Last Ecstatic Days. Um, sure. So uh, look for that in the show notes. Uh, thank you, everyone, for um, joining the Week Croak podcast. Sorry that we haven't posted in a while, but maybe this will be the first one back for uh, a bunch more episodes. Uh, to support the podcast, you can always join the Patreon or Download We Croak and remind yourself you're going to die five times a day. Join the little Leap subscription if you have uh, an iPhone and write us. Tell us what you're thinking about. We always love to hear from listeners. And thank you so much, Alex. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I think it's an awesome service. So, yeah, it's an honor to be on here. Thanks. Thank you.